0: Well, we're going to start 2 Thessalonians today, but we're going to begin 2 Thessalonians in 2 Peter, you might say, huh? Well, let's go there, 2 Peter chapter 3, living in light of the last days, you could say this is part two as we have already finished 1 Thessalonians, this letter of 2 Thessalonians came soon after 1 Thessalonians, we don't know exactly when, probably uh, anywhere from six months to a year afterwards, maybe less than that. It's been dated by some as around AD 51, 52. Evidently, the occasion of the letter, evidently after Paul had sent First Thessalonians, he received back a message from someone that the Thessalonians, the Thessalonian church, the believers there, were under great persecution. Not only that, but it seemed that they had received some false teaching somewhere along the line maybe even a false letter supposedly from Paul concerning the rapture in the day of the Lord. Now we see that covered next week and that's a very important passage, by the way. Be sure you're here next week for that. Now because of the false teaching, there were those who thought that they were in the tribulation period and that the rapture doesn't come first and we know that it was. The whole reason they were shaken in mind is because they believe the rapture did come before the tribulation and as Paul taught them. Also, there were some who had perverted Paul's teaching on the rapture and had uh, literally quit working, looking for the Lord to come back. And by the way, those people are even in the world today. They quit their jobs. As somebody convinces them the Lord's coming back on a certain day. They quit their jobs. They go stand in a field waiting for Jesus to come. And he never does. Or he doesn't come according to their plan. He is coming. He is coming. okay. Now, the occasion of the letter, uh, 2 Thessalonians, let me just give it to you very, or an outline, you might say. Chapter 1, we see, is to encourage them in their service for the Lord. Chapter 2, to instruct them concerning the day of the Lord. And chapter 3, to warn them concerning those who twist the truth of Scripture. There's a really, there's a little of everything here in 2 Thessalonians. So let's begin chapter 1. And I've entitled, you might say, this message today, A Loud Warning to a World in Rebellion. A Loud Warning to a World in Rebellion. But let me say, folks, in case you haven't noticed this, and I think most of you have, man is driven by his own pride. In our lifetimes as Americans, we have never seen the boldness of man's rebellion his defiance, and his hatred towards God like we are seeing now. It is unbelievable. It's like, is this the same country that I grew up in? Because it is so shifted, it is so deteriorated in so many ways. Not only are God's ways being rejected, they are being attacked. Every wrong thing and perverse idea that you can imagine is being accepted and embraced except... For Christianity. The fool thinks he can do away with Christianity. Let me say this. If you happen to be a skeptic here today or a skeptic and you're watching or listening, let me tell you something, dear friend. This message is for you. I want you to know something. You cannot do away with Christianity. Jesus is God. Jesus came back from the dead. He is alive today. He is in heaven. And it is just a matter of time before his father says, go take my children, bring them home to me at the rapture. Now, I know there are people who say, well, you know, the problem with the world today are those born-again Christians. And if they were just gone, our world would be a better place. Well, let me tell you something. We're going to do you a favor. One of these days, we are going to be gone. But what you inherit is not going to be a better place. It's going to be so horrific, you will wish that you had believed And yet God will still give you time to believe, even after that. Now, if that's not the grace of God, I don't know what is. Second Peter chapter three, because as we start looking at 2 Thessalonians, 2 Peter, you know, we're in days when people say, and part of, by the way, part of the criticism towards those of us who have trusted Christ as Savior is, is this. We talk about the rapture, and and you know, you'll hear people and they'll say things like, Yeah, yeah, yeah. You people have been saying that for millennia now and where is he if he's coming back where is he? he's not coming back we you know all this stuff about jesus coming back as a matter of fact there are believers who are even thinking in terms of is he really going to come back okay well i got news for you he is he has promised it as a matter of fact the very fact that people are skeptical about jesus coming back proves that he's coming back did you know that You see, folks, every person's life story is written about in the Bible. Do we understand that? You're in there somewhere. I'm in there somewhere. You can look at a life, a life that was maybe uh, a disaster and then was redeemed by the grace of God and the person became a giant of the faith. Those stories are in the Bible. Then there's also the accounts of people who got saved and who lived for the Lord for a while and then they fell away. Those people are in the Bible. And then there's those who were just absolutely wicked and consumed with doing evil, okay? And their lives were destroyed. Yet yeah, those people are in the Bible too. And those who deny the coming of Jesus are in the Bible too. See, God's got it all covered. Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 3, it says this, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, mockers, walking after their own lusts. See, that's what they're in love with, is their cravings. And what are they going to say? They're going to say, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were, from the beginning of the creation. Here's the truth of it, folks. The reason Jesus has not come back yet is found in verse 9. Look down at verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, to a change of mind that all should come to a point where they understand their lost condition and they trust in Jesus Christ as their savior, okay? This is the truth of it. See, God is not willing that any should perish. Why hasn't Jesus come back? I've had people say, where's God in all of this? Where's God in all this corruption and perversion and wickedness that we're seeing? Why doesn't he step in? Why doesn't he do something about it? He's going to do something about it. The only reason he hasn't is because he's giving people more time to put their faith in Christ. That's the only reason. Noah preached for what? About a hundred years when he was building the ark? A hundred years? Let's think about that. That's longer than any of our lifetimes here. Earl, you're getting close. But anyways, think about it. He preached to the people in the world. Talk about faith as he's building the ark, how many got on? Eight people. Him and his family. That's it. They're the ones who got on. Could more people have gotten on? Yes. It was open to all mankind. That's why he preached. But people didn't believe him until the floods came and they were taken away. They died. Folks, the ark is a picture of Jesus Christ. Anyone can enter in, Once you enter in by faith, you trust Christ the Savior, you're in the place of safety. By the way, God is the one who closes the door. He seals it. That's a picture of our eternal security in Christ. And what is it? It is deliverance from the disaster that will come. And this world is going to be going through very soon a time of tribulation and trouble. There's never been anything like it, nor ever will there again be anything like it. Those are the words of Jesus. Read Matthew 24. No, Jesus hasn't come back yet because he's waiting for more people to be saved. He knows who they are. He knows the last one. By the way, wouldn't that be something that you or I would be the one to lead a soul to Christ and as soon as we lead them to Christ, the rapture takes place. Church is full. Up you come. That'd be glorious. 2 Thessalonians now, chapter 1. Uh, Today I'm speaking basically, I'm directing the text and and the scriptures in this message to two groups. The first is this, I've got some important truths for believers, and then I've got some important truths for unbelievers. Second Thessalonians 1 verse 1, it says, Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus, Silvanus was Silas, Timotheus is Timothy. Paul and Sylvanus and, Tim- and Timotheus unto the church of the Thessalonians in God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. When you are a recipient of the grace of God, when you, when you put your faith in Christ and you are saved by grace, the result of that is peace. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse three, we are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet or fitting because that your faith groweth exceedingly and the charity or love of every one of you all towards each other aboundeth. Let's look at some important truths here. You notice first that their faith was growing exceedingly. This is God's plan for everyone born into the family of God. God never intends us when we get saved to remain babies in the faith. He expects us to grow, just like if you have a baby born into your family, okay, what do you want them to do? You want them to be growing. One of the main concerns right away is is the baby putting on weight, all right? I guess that kind of never leaves us, the issue of weight, right? Because then when we get older, we're wondering how can I lose the weight that I put on? You know, we're rooting for him to put on weight, and then at the end of your life, you're rooting for you to lose the weight. Anyway, that's not the kind of weight we're talking about here. But um, God's plan for everyone born into the family of God. And when we continue in the word of God, learning it and applying it, we will grow. The word of God is spiritual food for us. As we take it in and we apply it, we will grow. So their faith was growing exceedingly. All right, In uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and verse 13, if you remember, we covered that. Paul said, For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when you receive the word of God, which you heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. As we take it in and we apply it to life, we grow spiritually. That is supposed to be the normal course for every child of God. All right? All right. Uh, We are to be growing spiritually as believers. But secondly, you notice that they were not only, uh, their faith was not only growing exceedingly, but uh, secondly, they were not only learning the truth, they were living out the truth, living out the truth. Their love was abounding toward one another. See, there needs to be a balance between learning and doing. Learning and doing, driven by the love of Christ. Learning and doing. Now you know there are people who who they go to uh, some churches uh, and groups and and uh, they're not really learning the word of God and they'll come to a place such as our church where you're learning the word of God either topically or verse by verse and you're getting and you're getting all this knowledge and we're we're getting it we're we're learning the scriptures and that's great but that's only half of the blessing God has the other blessing is this I'm learning this what am I going to do with what I'm learning. It's just like, you know, you can take in physical food, and we love to eat, okay? You take in physical food, but what do we need to do? We need to exercise. We need to exercise. Food produces the energy and the nutrition to where now we can exercise our body, and when we're doing both of those, we can feel good. Guess what, spiritually? When we're doing both of those, we can feel good. When we're taking in the word of God and then we're exercising it out, living by the grace of God, by the love of Christ to other people. 2 Thessalonians 1, 4, it says, "...so that we ourselves glory in you, in the churches of God, for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure." That third characteristic of their, they remain faithful even under Persecution. They remain faithful even under persecution. We read these words, and they do not mean to us what they mean to Christians in other places in the world, and especially to Christians in the first century, when the, in the early church age. Folks, the language here. When we talk about... Patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. These are real things. We're talking about families being split up. Individuals in a family, because of their faith in Christ, being thrown in jail. People being killed because of their, their faith in Christ, okay? They were paying a price, a real price. It wasn't just that, you know, they were getting blocked on Facebook or something like that. I mean, that's, that shouldn't be happening, but it's nothing compared to what these people were going through. And yet they continued, yet they stayed true. They were faithful. See, life became difficult, but it's like, no, we're not quitting. I'm sorry. I'm not gonna compromise the word of God. See, this remaining faithful under persecution indicates two things to me. One is they chose to believe God. It's a matter of faith. Why in the world, you know, it's one thing to hold to a belief, and then if I'm getting, if it's going to cost me to hold to that belief, if I still hold to that belief and I have to pay a price for it, what does that say? That says that, you know what, you must really believe what you say you believe if you're willing to suffer loss for that. They chose to believe God. One man said this, you need not choose evil. You have only to fail to choose good and you will drift fast enough towards evil. And that is the truth. Can I tell you today, you're either going forward or you're going backward. Don't be deceived by this. You're either going forward or you're going backward. It's just like those, I don't know what you call them, those uh, flat escalators at the airport you know, when you got those long terminals and you got on those things and, you know, you get on, and I love those things. I feel like Superman once I get on those. I mean, you know, you're walking, you're walking, you got your stuff and you get on those and it's like, (laughs) it's like you're just flying, you know, and you're passing people up. Hopefully they're standing where they're supposed to. You know, there's the place where people, there's the one side where if you don't want to walk and just stand there, you can do that safely. And then there's the other side for the, for the walkers. And I like to do the walking part of it. But sometimes you get the standers on both sides. Anyways, <laughs> we'll see how spiritual you are in those situations. <laughs> but here's the point. If you're coming the other way on those, and by the way, you can. It's a little bit more work. But if you're going against, against the tide, if you're going against the direction, and by the way, if you're going against the direction of the world, it's going to take some effort to do that. You stand still, guess what? You're going with them. It's exactly the same way in the Christian life. These Thessalonian believers were sold out for Christ. And because of that, they were suffering persecution. Secondly, they had fully decided about the kind of lives they were going to live. There was no riding the fence for them. They were sold out for Christ. The bridge to their past way of life had been burned. Okay, They decided, I'm following Jesus, no turning back. This is the direction I'm going. Did they have to do that? They didn't have to do that. But they were so grateful for the grace of God in saving them and giving them eternal life. They so saw the issue that, you know what, people need to hear the gospel. As a matter of fact, they were so faithful. In chapter one, Paul said, we don't even need to say anything to people in your region because they already heard it from you. Every believer needs to come to this point, being fully decided about the kind of life we are going to live. Folks, if and when we face in this country real persecution, that is not the time to decide. The time to decide to do what's right is now. Verse five. Well, I'll read verse 4 again. So that we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God for your patience and faith. By the way, you notice this? Their faithfulness was being found out by other churches and other places. What a testimony. Verse 5, which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. Okay. This fourth issue here is that they would be rewarded for their faithfulness. Their persecution showed that God is real and that there is a real spiritual battle going on. Their perseverance would count them worthy of the kingdom. I think that's talking about their reward when they get there. Their reward. What place in the kingdom, in the kingdom age, what place in the kingdom are they going to have? Well, that's based on their faithfulness. Every believer will be in the kingdom, but where you will be in the kingdom or your responsibilities or your place in the kingdom is determined by your faithfulness to Christ today. So we see there's wonderful things in store for the believer. And yet there's hard, clear, sobering decisions we need to make as Christians today as far as the life we're going to live and who we're going to live for. Listen, salvation's a gift bought and paid for through the blood of Christ. You don't earn your way to heaven. You don't work your way to heaven. You don't get to heaven by being good. You don't go to hell by being bad. It's what you do with what Jesus Christ did on the cross. If you trust in him that he died in your place and paid for all your sins and rose from the grave, if you trust in him and him alone as your savior, he gives you eternal life. It's a gift. It's free. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. But if you say, well, no, I, I think that's good, but I think I need to do more than that then you're trusting in your works and your works will not save you. You will not end up in heaven even though you may be a quote-unquote moral person. Morality doesn't save, only Jesus does. Now, that being true, these are important truths we've covered, challenging for us. Their faith was growing exceedingly. They were not only learning the truth, but living it out. They remained faithful even under persecution. And they would be rewarded for their faithfulness. That's all true for every believer or the way it's supposed to be, I should say, for every believer. All those truths hold true for every believer, okay? So we got that, we understand that. If you don't live for Christ as a Christian, it does not forfeit your salvation. You still go to heaven because it's, it's a gift. Gifts are free, you can't earn them, all right? You know, I, uh, I noticed recently and I... In one of my messages, I happened to review it. And I used a term, and I'm going to be using it more because I think it's an excellent term. I used a term, I'd never heard it before, but it just kind of came out. I talked about these false gospels today, these lordship salvation gospels. I referred to them as hybrid gospels, which are false gospels, hybrid. Now we all understand hybrids today, right? We think in terms of like cars and so forth, Part of it is, is battery-operated or electric. The other part is, is gas engine. It's two different things, okay? Hybrid gospels today, grace and works, mixing the two together, that is a damnable doctrine that you're, you're saved by grace through faith, but you you have to live right or else you're not saved in the end. That's just a, a new fancy way of saying it's not only by what Christ has done, but it's also done by your faithfulness. That's a hybrid gospel. Those hybrids are dangerous. They will not save. They will not get you to heaven. It's all of what Jesus did. We have nothing to offer him. I heard on the way in today, great him. You know, unfortunately evangelists who preach a false gospel have used it for a year, but it's a great hymn, okay? Just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, I come. That's how you come. Have Nothing, nothing in my hands I bring, only to thy cross I cling. Boy, that hymn we sang this morning, my faith has found a resting place, is that not rich? Man, that is so powerful. I get, I know I shared this recently, I get emails regularly of people who are struggling with their eternal security, whether they're saved or not. You know, they, they'll say, I know it's by grace alone, through faith alone, Christ alone. I put my faith in Christ. I believe Jesus died for my sin. I believe he's the only way, but I have no peace in my life. I get this and that. And, and you know, how can I know? And all that. I'm, I'm going to start taking the lyrics of that song and saying, you know what? Maybe this is a different way to put it. That'll break through to your mind. Now, I know, don't anybody come up afterward and say, well, pastor, why don't you give them scripture? listen folks, I've given these people pages of scripture. That's first. We certainly, that's where you go first. Pray for them. There's many who struggle with that. So we've seen important truths for believers, but let me give you today some important truths for unbelievers. And you know, for those of us here today who are believers You might say, well, this isn't for me. Actually, it's for you in the sense of here's some tools that we can use to share with those who haven't trusted Christ the Savior yet. They need to understand these things. Folks, we are called to a day when we need to be lovingly bold with the people who are in this world. Listen, time is running out for them. Not only if they die, they'll be lost forever with no second chances, but even if they don't die, if the rapture takes place, they're going to be left to go through this horrific thing we call the tribulation period. And 2 Thessalonians says an awful lot about it. 1 Thessalonians 5 also did. So let's look at some important truths for unbelievers. 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 6, Paul says, Seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you okay listen God does not take it lightly when his children are being persecuted by unbelievers God doesn't take it lightly well didn't Jesus say you know that if they hated me they're going to hate you and all that yes but that doesn't mean he has no feelings about it he loves truth and when his children walk in truth he loves it when we do that And yet he doesn't take pleasure to see us go through tribulation and suffering and persecution and mocking. And by the way, he knows all about it, doesn't he? No one suffered more than he did. But verse six, it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. God is going to pour out tribulation on those who are persecuting his children. Friend, you mock Christianity, it's going to come back on you one day. I don't say that with pleasure. I say that in love, and I'm warning. If you mock Christianity, it's going to come back on you someday. It's only a matter of time. Let's look at this. Let's break it down. First is this. Unbelievers will pay a price one day for their unbelief. Again, I do not say this with pleasure because it will be eternal torment. Torment excruciating, unbearable suffering. It's what the Bible teaches. Most people rebel to this idea today, which in reality shows the depth of man's pride. When unbelievers hear about this and they scoff at it, it is revealing how much pride they have. The truth of it is this. They ought to be shaking in their boots. That would be the proper response to the fact that there is a real hell that people are going to. People ought to be scared to death, but they mock it. That's how deep pride is. It's like an ant sticking his tongue out at a human being. I dare you, step on me. You crazy? You say, well, that doesn't sound very loving to me. What we say at the beginning of this message? God is not willing that any should perish. The reason Jesus hasn't come back is because he's long suffering, giving man more time, more time, more time. Yes, you're spitting in my face. You're mocking my name. You've got a prejudice against me. You're persecuting my children. You're making fun of them. You're excluding them from society. And I haven't come down on you yet because I love you and I want you to be saved. That's the scripture. 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 7, And to you who are troubled, rest with us, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Now, let me just say right away here, and I'll get back to this, this is not talking about the rapture, this is talking about the second coming to earth at the end of the tribulation period. And to you who are troubled, rest with us, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire... Taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. How do you obey the gospel? By believing it. Look at this who shall be punished with everlasting destruction. This is just as true as John three sixteen who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe because our testimony among you was believed in that day. Wherefore also we pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of his calling and fulfill in all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and ye in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ he this is where we being careful with the word of God is so important understand the time frame here folks understand the time frame First, we see the unbelievers are going to pay a price one day for their unbelief. When is that? During the tribulation, particularly at the end of the tribulation, when Jesus comes back to defeat the armies of the world, to set up his kingdom. And then secondly, this flaming judgment will take place, again, at the second coming And again, that takes place at the end of the tribulation. Now, during the tribulation, Jesus is going to be pouring out the wrath of God on mankind during that whole period, okay? He is going to be turning up the heat, not only literally, but figuratively, on this planet. He's going to be pouring out judgment after judgment after judgment to get people to have a change of mind and to put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior, Yes, they're going to go through the tribulation period, but at least they can be saved. And yes, they'll suffer terrible persecution as believers during the tribulation period, the seven years. Now, how do we know this is going to happen? Jesus will not be revealed to the world at the rapture. It is just for believers. Let me show you, and I forgot to bring my I knew there was something I was supposed to ask somebody about and I forgot to do it. Let's look at this chart again and you'll see it and I'll just just walk you through it. Let's look at our chart, prophecy chart. Here we see here the first coming of Christ, the death of Christ. Then we see the church age, okay? The church age ends with, you see it up there, the rapture of the church. That's when Jesus comes back for His saints. Those of us who are believers today, that's what we're looking for. We're looking for the rapture of the the church. After the rapture of the church, there's a seven-year tribulation period. God is going to be pouring out His wrath during that time, but that's not the end of it. Ultimately, for the unbeliever, there's hell. Everlasting torment. That's hell. The tribulation is a sample of that in this life. It's going to be the worst time that the world has ever known, that seven-year period of time. The vast majority of the book of Revelation, chapter 6 through chapter 19, deal with the tribulation period, as well as Matthew 24 is a good one. There are many passages in the Old Testament as well that talk about the tribulation period. Okay, That's where they would fit in. That will end with, you notice... After the rapture, seven years after that, the second coming of Christ. We will have been in heaven for seven years. We are coming back with Jesus at the second coming of Christ. He will come, as we're going to read in just a moment, He is going to come to finally, once and for all, okay, conquer the armies of the world at that point. And He's going to set up His millennial kingdom. 1,000 years ruling and reigning here, physically, bodily, in glory in other words, glorified, from Jerusalem. And that will go on for 1,000 years, all right? And now there's some other judgments in there, but uh, we're not going to cover those today because that's not really what the text is all about. So notice also that it is not the glorification of the saints, it's the glorification of Christ talked about here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. It is his glorious appearing. He will be rightfully seen as the king of kings, the Lord of lords. Then he will set up his kingdom. This is when he comes back at the second coming at the end of the tribulation period, at the end of the tribulation period. So the church goes out before the tribulation begins and then we'll be coming back with Jesus at the end of the tribulation period. So what do we see? We see first the rapture, then the tribulation period with its judgments, and then the second coming back to earth. Let me show that to you one more time. Let's look at the chart one more time. What do we see? We see first the rapture, you see it? Then the tribulation, then the second coming. That's what's coming. We are looking for the rapture today. We're not looking for Jesus to come all the way back to earth. We're looking for Jesus to come, and we are going to be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord, the Bible says, in the air in the air, okay? Now, at the second coming, let me show you a little bit about the second coming. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 19. There are a lot of passages I could go to having to do with the second coming. I find this one the most complete, the most, it gives you such a clear picture as much as we can with words of what it's going to be like. Understand, all the armies of the world will have been gathered together to do battle, to fight, at Armageddon, the Valley of Megiddo, there in Israel, which is a real place, by the way. If you've been to Israel, you've seen it. You've seen it. It's a massive area. Now, we know the Battle of Armageddon, it isn't just one battle. It's a a campaign, okay, a battle. We know that, but this is where that battle will culminate, But that being so, so here's all these armies really to fight against uh, one another. The armies of the east are going to be there and all these different nations to do battle against each other. And then look at Revelation 19 and verse 11. And I saw heaven open. Now let's just stop and think about that for a minute. The sky is going to open and I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. This is Jesus, John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him, that's us, upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, and out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, the Word of God, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. Dear, mocking, unbelieving friends, Listen, your days are limited. You need to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior now. You're either going to face Him as your Savior or you're going to face Him one day as your judge. And He treadeth the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. The Bible says that the blood is going to go up to the horse's bridles. I don't know if it's going to be that deep or if it's going to splash up that high. It's going to be a bloodbath when this takes place, this battle. He that treadeth the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of God. You see the language there? Fierceness, wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried with a loud voice saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men. It's going to be a massive slaughter and the flesh of horses, hundreds of thousands, I believe, and of them that sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great, probably millions. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth, the beast is the Antichrist, and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him. How stupid is that? That sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet, which wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the remnant, in other words, those that followed them, that were on their side, these are unbelievers. And the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeds out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. Okay. All Jesus is going to do is speak the word. You talk about power. I don't know what he's going to say. You're done. You're defeated. You're dead meat. I don't know what he's going to say. I can tell you this though. Maybe he's going to say, I win. That's all he needs to say. And it's just like, they're done. Just like that. God holds mankind accountable. This is the great truth. This is inescapable. The man who rejects the payment Jesus made for his sins will be held accountable for them in the future. And he's going to be punished with everlasting destruction. Okay? Me, One verse in closing, John chapter 3 and verse 36. And let me explain it to you. Turn there. Jesus, or, or John the Baptist actually said this. It says, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Abides. That means, that's present tense. That means right now the wrath of God abides on the unbeliever. If you die without the wrath of God being removed, you will immediately be in eternal torment. No second chances forever and ever and ever. Is there anything more serious than this? There's nothing more serious than this. Look up here. How can you escape this? Watch this illustration. This hand to represent you and me. Here we are, swallowed our sin. We're all sinners. All of us are sinners. That's the truth of it. Yet God loves us. He hates our sin. God loves us. He hates our sin. To get to heaven, you have to be sinless in the eyes of God. Heaven is a perfect place. You're going to have to be perfect to get in. Not even one lie can get in. Not even one. We've all blown it. We're all sinners. God says sin has to be punished, has to be paid for. If we pay for our own sin, we're going to be lost forever, suffering in hell to pay for our own sin. That is not the desire of God. God is not willing that any should perish. Most people think your good works will take away sin, but the Bible says if you have to be perfect, you could put all your whole lifetime of good works on there. It still doesn't take the sin away. The sin's got to be gone. So what are you going to do? Good works won't do it. The Bible says, For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Because there's nothing we could do, God not wanting to pour out his wrath on anyone, sacrificed his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, this hand representing him. He came to earth. He took our sin upon himself. He paid for our sin. He had none of his own to pay for. He didn't have to do this. But it's his love that drove him to this. He died. He paid for our sin. All of it. Past, present, and future. All your sin's been paid for. All mine has been paid for. The payment has been made. He rose from the grave to prove it was done. And he says, if you will believe, trust in him, that he made that payment for you, the moment you do, you have everlasting life. He'll never lose you. He'll never cast you out. But if you will not trust in him and him alone as your savior, you're saying, I will hold myself responsible. The wrath of God then continues to abide on you If you die in that condition, there's no second chances. You know, every believer, the moment they die, they see it clearly. They see it clearly. But it's too late. Let me ask you, friend, have you trusted Christ as your Savior? If you haven't, can I say this? You are on a collision course with the very one who created the planet, the very one who died for you You're on a collision course one day with him. I urge you, will you trust in Christ as your savior? He'll give you eternal life. It's a gift. You're not promising. This is not a contract. It is a gift. You're not promising anything. You're saying, I need a savior. I'm guilty. I'm a sinner. I need a savior. I'm trusting in Christ as my savior. And he'll give you the gift of eternal life. Nothing better than that.